does it ever worry any of you that this thing might slide off? It does me. <laughs> okay. As long as I'm not the only one looking at that thing. <laughs> so far it hasn't. It would be something to start our Bible class with a crash, wouldn't it? Well, we're still in Romans 9. If you want to turn over to Romans 9 and look at verse 22, 22 and 23. This is a very controversial area of Scripture. Uh, because it's so definitely pointed, there are an awful lot of people in the religious world that uh, make light of it, try to change what it means, uh, say that this is where Calvinists get everything they got. I don't know. I think the greatest Calvinist in the world was Paul. <laughs> He's the one that said, saying all this, you know, Calvin didn't have anything to do with writing these scriptures. This is just the way the scriptures read. Uh, let's start with verse 15 and get the whole... Uh, thought here we'll read down through 23 where he saith to Moses I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion so then it is not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth but of God that showeth mercy for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall a thing form say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? And hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? And what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory? We were just reading in Romans 9. And let's bow our heads just for a moment. Father, we want to ask thy blessing on this lesson this morning. Though it's difficult for the human mind to ponder these things. The human mind wants to do God's thinking. But we ask you to clear our hearts and minds and let us think along with the scriptures today. Let us see the truth of how God has mercy on some and some he just passes by. If, we're ha if we have an interest in eternity, may our hearts praise thee and thank thee and just continue on doing so. Again, we ask for understanding. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So in our verse 23, we see there's vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Now, all of mankind can be described by various comparisons. When we say clay, there is no comparison there because it's all the same. All go back to the same polluted bloodline, and that happens to be in Romans 5.12. Just back a couple pages, and you're going to find the bloodline where it starts when he says that from the same lump of clay where he fashions these vessels. Well, here it is. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin... 
And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We find this polluted source there is Adam. Same source. But God in his mercy makes a distinction among humanity. In verses 22 and 23 we see a very sharp distinction, a very clear comparison, vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy. Now there are lots of comparisons in the scriptures and we're going to give you a few others right now. For instance, like saved and lost. That's a comparison. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and then keep your place there in Romans 9. But 2 Corinthians 4, 3. It says, But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. Now look at 1 Corinthians 1, 18. And talk about now to them that are saved. For after that, oh, 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. So there you have lost, saved, and lost. Another comparison you can find in one scripture is in Ephesians 2 1, where it says, quickened and dead. There's comparisons. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. There's another good comparison in 1 John 3, 1. In 1 John 3, 1, we find sons of God and children of the world. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not and then if you just look across the page at, at 1 John 4 4, 4 and 5 it says ye are of God little children and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world they are of the world and therefore speak they of the world and the world heareth them we are of God and he knoweth he that knoweth God heareth us he that is not of God heareth us not. There's a big comparison. Children of God and children of the world. Then there's another good comparison given in one verse. It's in John 3.36. You'll turn to John 3.36. We have here a comparison of believers and unbelievers. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not... The son shall believe not the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Now in 1 Corinthians 2.14, we're going to find a natural man and a spiritual man. 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So you have a comparison there of spiritual and a natural man. John 3, 3, I know you know that's going to say something about being born again, huh? Okay, born again in comparison to once 
born. Okay, John 3, 3 and 4. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? You have twice born men and once born. That's your comparison. All right, another comparison in the scriptures, and we just have two more. Lovers of God and lovers of pleasure. That's a comparison. Turn to 2 Timothy 3.4. 2 Timothy 3.4. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. There's your comparison. Now, one more. Elect and non-elect. Ah, they don't like this word. It's there, though. 1 Peter 1, 2. 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. And in stay in Peter, but look at second chapter, verse eight. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient. Whereunto also they were appointed. So there we have the elect and the non-elect. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, and those being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. You know, it's humorous to me, the religious world, thinking that God is disappointed because everybody doesn't believe. They don't know that they're appointed to that. In the end, you never see it during the means or in the lifetime. The end picture, the end result, if somebody does not believe, is because they've been appointed. And yet does the blame fall on God? Not at all. It's on their own wicked heart because he didn't interfere into their life. They had their own free going. If God saves anybody, he interferes into their life. And then their life is not as pleasurable. It's not as much fun as the world looks at fun. It's a life of suffering. It's a life of hardship. It's a life of being made fun of. And just because they're elect doesn't mean they get all the glories of this world. They get nothing but eternal life. Isn't that something? Ah, give me that eternal life any time. Now, let's get back to our scriptures. Romans 9, the grand object of God both in the election and reprobation of men is that which is number one to all things else in the creation of the universe, his own glory. This is offensive to the natural mind, always appears foolishness to him or her, but that's how Paul winds up all this discussion in Romans 11.36. Look how what he says. This is what it's all going to boil down to. For of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Okay. 
Now, his glory is the end and the means to the end is that it pleased him. Let's look at 1 Corinthians one twenty one. Everything God does or has planned is to please him. It's for his glory. And I've heard the friends, uh, my Jehovah Witness friends say, oh, that's being selfish. They call God selfish because he's to get glory to himself. Hey, forget all their foolish talk. In verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 1, it said the second part of that verse, it says, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. Even preaching pleases God. Now, can words be any plainer than that, that it pleases God to do certain things? In fact, the words are so plain that the religious world goes through all the trouble to make new versions and so-called translations just to change or leave out those words that are so clear. And before we go any further, let me just one more time warn you against any other so-called Bible. We use the King James Bible because we feel it's God's original to English-speaking people. Now, they've come out with a new King James Version. Uh, not that one. You keep your hands off of that one. The original 1611 King James Bible is what we use. For your own eternal welfare, I'm warning you to stay with the authorized King James Version and trash everything else. You don't even need them for comparison. Exactly that into the trash with the New World Bible, the Jerusalem Bible, the Catholic Bible called the Douay Version, and everything in that's come out in the last 200 years that has been taken from Catholic manuscripts. That's where they all come from. Now, the scholars, so-called, have all been brainwashed to say that the best of the old manuscripts are the Catholic manuscripts. Uh-uh, no, uh-uh, not at all. That's another lie floating around out there. Well, that's a word to the wise. Stay with your King James Bible. Now, there are a thousand and one lies going on out there to make money and pervert God's word at the same time. That's why the publishers are publishing new Bibles. They make money. And the world falls for the sales pitch each and every time. They sell them by the thousands, maybe millions. The Jehovah Witnesses come up with, oh, they found some old manuscripts of Isaiah that uses the word Jehovah 500 times. They haven't found anything. All of that is playing religion. Oh, it's easy for somebody to go out and say they found something in the cave and write it in, in, in the uh, Greek. Scholars can do that. They have irreligious scholars who will write anything for you for a price. And they use that to produce a book that changes every verse in the rest of the Bible. They found a copy of Isaiah in a cave somewhere and so they change what? Isaiah? Uh-uh. They changed John 1.1 to read instead of and the word was God. Here's what they change it to. And the word was a God with a little g. That's what they think about the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll go through. They'll, they'll print a whole Bible in order to 
discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ just like the Jews did when our Lord said in John 10.30, I and my Father are one. Oh, they don't like that. They do not acknowledge our blessed Lord Jesus as God. They say he's a created being, a lesser God than the Father. And by the way, they have mutilated the scriptures in their Bible. In their Bible, he is less than the Father. And that's the reason for all perversions, to try to take away the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Funny, isn't it? God has preserved his word. With all the cults and the false teaching going on, we still have access to the truth. John 17, 17 says, Thy word is truth, and the truth shall make you free in John 8, 32. And better than that, we go from the written word and written truth to the living word and personified truth in John 14.6. Turn to John 14.6 because when you're talking about truth, it happens to be that our Lord Jesus Christ is truth personified. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Boy, they don't like that either. Nobody likes that. They really don't. All religions in the world hate that verse of Scripture. That's the most dogmatic verse there is. You don't get to God but by Christ. People don't believe in Christ? Forget it. Someone was telling me about the uh, broadcast that comes on just before Brother Shelton on Sunday mornings. They have a Catholic woman on there. She was urging everybody, everybody to come to Mary. Bring all your burdens and your problems and your cares. Bring them to Mary and she will tell them to her son. Isn't that just a beautiful religion? Isn't that as pagan as anything you ever heard in your life? And that's our neighbors, that's our relatives, that's the big religion in this country. That's the one behind the newspapers and the television broadcasts. That's the power in the world, that Catholic religion that's so phony it stinks to God's people. You see, we're made free by a person. Apart from this person, the Son of God who became the God-man so that we could come to the Father, there is no salvation. There are no comparative religions in the world. That's a a false setup to teach comparative religions. They can compare with themselves, but Christianity is not even to be compared with them. They are false. They are products of man's depraved imagination. And they hold the bulk of humanity in ignorance of how God saves the sinner. Religion is the holding pen that Satan uses to round up and hold his captives. Oh, you heard that before. Satan has captives? Sure. 2 Timothy 2.26. 2 Timothy 2.26. And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of Satan, or out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. 
Why does God put up with this? The answer is in our verses, Romans 9, 22, and 23. The very verses we have today is your answer as to why God puts up with all of this. It says, What if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. It says he endured with much long suffering. Why does not God immediately cut off transgressors? Why does he not make an end of them at once? The answer is he endures them for his own glory and in their condemnation he will be glorified. Now to the self-righteous it would appear preferable if God would cut off in childhood all whom he foresaw should continue in wickedness. But God endures them to old age and to the utmost bounds of wickedness for the glory of his own name. And again, that's only God's knowledge. And all of God's people, until they are quickened, appear just exactly like children of wrath. There's no difference. You can walk through them all and you can't tell the difference between God's children, who's going to be one of God's child, and who isn't. Look at Ephesians 2, 3. This is kind of an amazing scripture because it says we are all the children of wrath. Well, until mercy sorts out who are God's people, you can't tell the difference. Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. What's this by nature? Well, it takes you up to the time when God quickens you or gives you an interest in eternal things. Some folks go a long time in life before that happens. I was quickened at around 22, 23 years old. Interested a little bit before that, in spiritual things, but not shown by God's Holy Spirit that I was lost. Now that is so definite, it's so plain when it happens. You can't kick it. You can't say, oh, that's my imagination, or that's Satan. I want to tell you something. Satan never shows anybody they're lost. You got that part? He's showing everybody they're okay, they're saved, they're fine, they're just great and dandy. He never shows anybody they're lost. God's Holy Spirit reproves of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's his job. He shows people they're lost. Well, that then is where it starts. Then you know you have the nature of the children of wrath. Until then, most people would never say, Oh, what are you talking about, child of wrath? Well, that's everybody, but they don't know it until God shows that to you. But then you're on your way, you see. Okay. David comes up with a great question in Psalm 133. 130 in verse 3. Psalm 130 in verse 3. Now this question 
is a real good one and it's an answer to some of our self-righteous folks why doesn't God wipe out people as soon as they start sinning because if God kept track we'd be in trouble 133 if thou Lord shouldest mark iniquities O Lord who shall stand you know the answer would be nobody nobody could stand if God would mark our iniquities and then give us justice according to him oh but he lets our iniquities pile up and pile up and pile up until we begin to believe there is no such thing as sin no such thing as iniquity what are you talking about this is natural to the man this is this is living this is the custom all the while it's sin being built up so you see it's a good thing that god doesn't eliminate a sinner as soon as he sins or no one would be saved now our verse also mentions something about vessels of wrath let's take a peek at that one verse 23 and that he might make known no uh, vessels of wrath that's in verse 22 what if God willing to show his wrath and to make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction Paul uses the word vessel again here it's a container that can only hold so much any vessel I want you to turn to Isaiah 51 and look at verse 20 Isaiah 51 20 going to tell us about a vessel Isaiah 51 20 Thy sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full, listen, they are full of the fury of the Lord. I wonder what Jehovah's Witnesses do with a scripture like this when they keep pushing to you. God is love. God is love. He wouldn't send, let anybody go to hell. He wouldn't let anybody be punished forever. He's love. Look at what we just read. They are full of of the fury of the Lord. Now look up at verse 17. Same same page there. Awake, awake. Stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. Thou hast drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Fury of the Lord. God's fury is upon sin. The sinner fills his own cup to overflowing. The cup of his fury to the sinner is the cup of trembling. Every awakened sinner trembles when he looks into that cup and sees that the wages that he earned as a sinner would fill the bank. Look at Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 tells you there's some wages that you're earning everybody earns you know there's not a pauper in the world when it comes to these wages for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord more people in the world would rather retire 
on their wages than to accept the gift of God. Isn't that something? An eternity in a lake of fire with all the unbelieving filth of the world. That's what the wages get you. Tormented day and night forever and ever. That should make any sinner tremble. The cup of trembling. But how many people do you know who tremble at their thought or even give it a thought? People just don't give it a thought. They don't believe. You see, if you and I can even think these thoughts, concentrate upon them, give them some part of our life, it's because God has made you to differ to have these spiritual thoughts. Thoughts of heaven and hell are spiritual. The rest of the world never gives it a thought. But look at Revelation 20 now, verse 10. Revelation 20 and verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Well, you see, the, I, I got these Jehovah Witnesses on my mind. I brought them to this scripture, you know, and they said, well, uh, they, they, they'll be burned up immediately. They're, you know, it, the fire can go on forever and ever, but anybody cast in there, you know, will be terminated immediately. Well, look, if you ever run up against a Jehovah Witness, look over at Revelation 19.20. Revelation 19.20, and it talks about the beast and the false prophet being cast into this same lake of fire a thousand years before, and they're still there. You see, they, they don't want to talk about that. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. Notice, these are individuals. This is not nations or governments like the witnesses want to tell you too. Uh -uh. These are people that wrought miracles before him which, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And then over there in 2010, we find they're still there when Satan is cast into after the thousand years. Uh, sad, sad, disillusioned people over there. And then uh, verse 14 in Revelation 20, we just read 10. It says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire, this is the second death. And of course, they say that hell is just the grave. No, hell is not the grave. Hell is the holding place for souls. Death is the grave. When the body dies, it goes to the grave. The soul goes to hell. Well, they don't believe that either, you know. this. But here it tells you that both of these, the body and the soul, then are cast into the lake of fire. And it's called, this is the second death. But before we close, there's good news in the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ took the cup of fury, the cup of God's wrath due to sin, and drank it to its very dregs for you and I. That's the good news of the gospel. 
Look at Luke 22, verse 42. Luke 22:42, where our Lord says, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. There was a cup. It had all the dregs of our sins in the bottom of it. And he drank this cup to the very dregs. His humanity and his deity both hated the thought of sin being laid upon him. Now he wasn't afraid of the suffering and dying. No, that didn't bother our Lord who was perfect. The law had nothing on him. But to take our sin debt upon him and have to pay for our sins to be to be made sin for us, as the scripture says, that's what made him shrink. That's what he hated. That's what his holy nature shunned. Didn't shun it. I mean, wanted to shun it, but couldn't because this was God's will to lay our sins upon him. He didn't tremble at the suffering and death associated with the cup. It was the awfulness and filthiness of sin that made the cup to froth and to boil. Look at John 18.11. John 18.11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? He had, to he had to become sin for us. Oh, the blessedness of substitution and imputation, clearly taught in the Scriptures. Our last Scripture to look at, 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. You know, our Lord Jesus Christ spent his whole life shunning sin. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. He was deity in flesh. Deity cannot even be tempted now with sin. It says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What was the righteousness? Well, it wasn't eternal life that God the Son had before he became a person. It was the eternal life promised by the law. If you keep me perfectly, you get eternal life. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ earned that eternal life for us. Eternal life that belonged to human beings if they kept the law perfectly. So the Lord had to make him to be sin for us. You see, there's two things that happen. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ had to keep the law 
perfectly for us to earn eternal life. Now that's where your eternal life comes in. And then he has to become sin for us and pay for our sins that we can then inherit this eternal life. He could not just give us eternal life without our sins being paid for. God's law said sin has got to be paid for with spotless, sinless blood. So he keeps the law to give us eternal life and he dies for us in our place to pay for our sin and we're free. We're free to inherit the eternal life that he gives us. You got the picture? It's simple. You know, for years and years, I never saw that. As a kid, I never saw that. Everybody read the Bible and we'd study and all Christ died for sinners. Never could understand how eternal life entered into here with him dying for us. What's that have to do with it? It wasn't just his dying. He became sin for us. Not ever sin ever touched him all of his life. He kept the law perfectly to earn for us eternal life, okay? Let's bow our heads. Father, we want to thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the scriptures that we read. Those are the wonderful things. Teaching us about our Lord Jesus Christ becoming sin for us. The scriptures teaching us that God is sovereign in his choices. Nobody makes any decisions for him. And what he does is perfectly just and righteous. He makes some vessels of mercy and some of wrath. But it's his business. And those who are vessels of mercy ought to praise and thank him forever and ever without ceasing. Because those who are vessels of wrath will be gnashing their teeth in outer darkness forever and ever. Because he just left them alone. Father, make us thankful. Teach us these truths. Thou hast made us to differ. Now give us a heart to worship and to look for thy coming. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.